What a beautiful prayer, huh? God, you're my everything. Easy to sing, hard to live. Am I right about it? Are you thankful for the love of Jesus? Father, we bless you. We thank you for your awesome presence in this room. We sense your love. We sense your grace. God, we sense that you are here. And Father, we thank you for uh, just the, the truth that we can come to your throne of grace whenever we have need. And Father, we can come boldly. We don't have to come hesitantly. We don't have to come, God, with, with question marks or doubts. God, we can come with total boldness, knowing that the way has been made for us to approach you. And so we're here today, God, asking you to move in each and every life. And we all said a big amen. Amen. Why don't we give the Lord a good hand clap together? Well, you can be seated. I love worshiping um, the Lord with you. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 33. And I'm going to do my best to get there in just a minute. Everybody doing all right? Feeling all right? Well, God somehow saw fit that I would miss all the snow. And I can feel um, your hate. And I don't care. I'm just kidding. Thank you for allowing us to get away for a little bit. Had a great time. Sarah and I are coming up on our 24th, our 24th um, wedding anniversary. And I said, you better do something special for me after 24 years. And she said, well, what do you want? I said, take me to Florida. So there you go. Um, Yes. Y'all know I'm just playing, right? Just this is it's all the other way. Deuteronomy chapter 33. Before we get there, I want to say hello to all those. Uh, dream teamers, volunteers, all those who um, are in Cincinnati right now, um, watching, hanging out with us. And uh, some of them been there since 3.30 this morning, uh, setting up, making um, preparations uh, for just a real full run through. And so, uh, so can we just real quick put our hands together and say, hey, we're all in this together. And I just truly believe that there is a special miracle involved for all of you who are helping get everything up and running. And we are praying with you. We're believing God with you for an incredible opening, which means all of you here, it's not two different churches. It's one church, two locations, and including online. All of you who are watching online, or I guess it'd be countless locations at that point. And it doesn't matter where you're gathered geographically. Um, when, when you're a part of what God's doing here, um, we just are thankful for the message is not confined uh, to a building. Come on. It's not confined to, thankfully, it's not confined to my physical presence. We'd all be in trouble, right? Um, but that the message uh, supersedes all of those um, uh, particulars. And so, yes, Deuteronomy chapter 33. I've got to go quick. Um, because I took too long last service and you don't want to hear me talk that long. So Deuteronomy chapter 33, actually going to start in verse 18 about Zebulon. Zebulon in your going in and Issachar in your, or in your going out and Issachar in your tents. 
They will summon people to the mountain and there offer sacrifices of the righteous. They will feast on the abundance of the seas and on the treasures hidden in the sand. That's what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about that thought treasures hidden in the sand. I'm going to clean some stuff up here. Treasures hidden in the sand. And I do believe that that thought is packed with so many truths that we're going to spend some time working on together. Just quickly, uh, I want to also maybe ask you to consider that if you don't like the artsiness of the title, that it's really a message on what to do when life looks hopeless, what to do when life looks hopeless. The background of this particular scripture is Jacob, you might remember, has this life-changing encounter with God. He is in a wrestling match with the Lord all night, and the longing of his heart, the cry of his heart is, God, bless me. God, I, want your, I want the blessing of God on my life. And a couple things happen in that wrestling match. One is God breaks the hip of Jacob, and the second thing is God changes the name of Jacob. Both of those speaking to the idea that whenever you have an encounter with God, you leave changed. Your identity's changed. Your future is changed. The way you walk is changed. The way you see yourself, the way you see the world, the way you see everything. If you have a real encounter with God, it changes everything. So Jacob walks out of that wrestling match, of course, with a little bit of a limp, but the blessing of God is on his life. He has 12 sons. We read about them all through um, the Old Testament. You've maybe heard of Judah. Maybe you've heard of Joseph or Levi or Reuben or Dan, all these different sons. The youngest son we just read about in that verse would be the last child of Leah, and his name is Zebulon. And so Jacob is at the end of his life. He's leaning on his staff, the Bible says. He's so weak, he's so frail that he doesn't have the strength to stand on his own. So he's leaning on his staff and he invites each one of the 12 sons into a one-on-one -on -one moment with him. And in this one-on-one -on -one moment with him, he speaks to them about the inheritance that they will get. Of course, the oldest son getting the greatest inheritance. And then it begins to be less and less until the youngest son, Zebulon, would be getting the least of all the inheritance that was given out. And so as he brings each son in, he finally ends up with Zebulon. After he talks to him about his inheritance, like he did with every son, he also blesses his sons and he prophetically speaks over their future. You can read all of those unique blessings in Genesis chapter 49 and specifically to Zebulon who we're looking at. He says, you will dwell by the sea by the edge or on the outskirts of the land of promise. You'll be in the promised land, but you'll be right on the edge of it. And so now fast forward to Deuteronomy 33, hundreds of years, Israel has come out of 400 years of slavery. They've come through the traverse uh, wilderness after 40 years. They're on the brink of entering the promised land. And now Moses, like Jacob, is at the end of his life. And like Jacob did the 12 sons. 
Now, Moses is going to talk to the 12 tribes who are the descendants of the 12 sons. So just like you have Judah, who was the son of Jacob. Now you have Judah. That's a tribe in Israel. The descendants of the sons of Jacob make up those 12 tribes. And so now the 12 tribes are being brought into the presence of Moses, just like the 12 sons were individually brought into the presence of Jacob. And Moses gets to the very last tribe, the least of all the tribes, which is Zebulon. And now he's not prophetically speaking. Now physically, he's showing them how Canaan is going to be broke up, which tribe gets which areas and how it's going to be partitioned up. And so he takes Zebulon and he, they show them this area of Canaan that they're going to receive, and that area would be the most mediocre, uh, the most despised of all the inheritance. As a matter of fact, it is considered an insulting place uh, to be asked to live. There's nothing as far as the eye can see in this area by the Sea of Galilee but sand. So they just got done with 40 years in the desert living with nothing but sand. They're moving into the promised land. It's supposed to be a land flowing with milk and honey. It's supposed to be a land where they could have vineyards and crops and land and raise livestock. In an agricultural society, you don't survive if you don't have soil. You can't feed your animals in sand. You can't grow food in sand. And so they're given this area that's nothing but sand. And as they're looking at this area in the presence of Moses, they know what their future is like, that, that this is a worthless inheritance. This is an inheritance of, of little to no value. They're discouraged. Moses can tell that they sense that it's somewhat of an insult. And the reason that we can even go deeper into why we know this was such an insult, for example, in your life, have you ever gone to a beach, a desert, uh, uh, a sand dune somewhere and saw security guards or saw armed security making sure that no one walked away from the beach with sand? Have you ever seen someone thrown into the back of a police car handcuffed because they decided to walk out with pockets of sand? No, Economics 101 teaches us, right, that the more there is of something, the less valuable it is. The Bible describes sand is innumerable. In other words, don't even try to calculate it. There's so much of it. And the sheer mass or abundance of sand speaks to its lack of value. Matthew seven says it like this, that the unwise person tries to build their house on the sand. Why? Because storms come, life hits, and that house can't stand. So even Jesus said, Hey, don't try to build your life on sand. Sand is not something you can build your life on. Moses buried the Egyptian he murdered in the sand because sand is a place you put things of no value. This is where you place your worst mistakes, your greatest failures. This is, this is where you put things of no value. Sand is worthless and sand is valueless, but yet that is exactly what Moses gave to this tribe. And let me just tell you one more way. We all know that this is an insult. If I had a prayer line and you were to come forward and I were to say, I have a prophetic word for your future. 
And you're like, yes, praise God. Thank you, pastor. I've been praying. We fasted. I got my list of seven things I've been believing God for. I can't wait uh, to hear what it is that, that God wants to say. I'm looking for confirmation of some dreams that I have in my heart. And I were to say to you, I sense, lift your hands. I sense in your future. I see wheelbarrows. Wheelbarrows are coming. Will, as far as I can see, there's wheelbarrows. They're, they're all, and they're full. They're full. Oh, praise God. Praise Jesus. What is it? What, what's it full of? I can't wait. I've been praying and fasting, believing God for good things and great things. What is it, pastor? What do you see in the wheelbarrows? I, I see sand. Well, is it symbolic sand? Is it figurative? What, what kind of sand is it? It's just sand. It's just, you're going to get some sand. God bless you. I already know you enough to say, that's not, that's not my word. You're a false prophet, by the way, and I'm leaving your church too. No one wants sand. And when we think about the world that we're in today and we look around, it's really a world that's insulted in many ways by their inheritance. The world is going crazy because of what they look at concerning what they've been handed in life. Maybe they were born in a disadvantaged environment, a broken home, maybe with an absentee parent. Maybe it was uh, raised in a difficult atmosphere of some type, maybe an atmosphere of abuse. Maybe it was physical abuse or emotional or verbal abuse, or maybe even something as extreme as is sexual abuse. And you were raised in that kind of an atmosphere you were raised maybe in poverty or economic challenges and, and you weren't given a leg up in life. And you look at those kind of things and that's the world that we live in right now. Just people just looking at what they've been handed and they're going mad because they, they are looking at their inheritance and it's an insult. It's not something they ask for. It's not something they dream for. It's not something they hope for, yet it's what life has given them. And I didn't want to be a negative Nelly on a Sunday morning, but I just felt like I needed to tell some of you at some point, life will insult you and it will give you sand. I hope that those of you who are here experience the opposite of this message. I hope life hands you nothing but silver and gold and platinum and diamonds and rubies and all kinds of precious stones. I, I really do hope that your life is filled with all the good things is my point. But at some point, life is going to hand most of us an inheritance that in many ways it's worthless material. In many ways, it's things that are of no value. And we look around and, and we think to ourselves, this is not what I dream for. This is not what I ask for. We look around at maybe what other people have received and what other people's lives look like. And we think to ourselves, that's what I wanted. That's what I dreamed for. That's what I prayed for. But not you. You've been handed an insulting inheritance of sand, no value, worthless. You dreamed of blessings, but you woke up to sand. You dreamed of being loved, but you woke up to heartbreak. You dreamed of a long life, but you're fighting a horrible disease. You dream, God, I want to be happy. I want to have joy, but you're waking up plagued constantly, fighting off depression. 
And this is why I love Moses so much, because he looks at Zebulon as they're walking out of the room, depressed and discouraged by the inheritance that they've been given. And Moses says, hey, before you go, I want to mention that there are treasures hidden in the sand. And the reason most people, the reason most people today are hopeless is because they believe what they've been handed is worthless. But Moses says, don't lose hope in the worthless place. There is treasure hidden in the sand. And so I love the fact that we can take this incredible story and we can use it to learn how to handle life when it looks hopeless. Number one, quickly, we have to choose to rise above what we have been handed. The Zebulonites were mocked by the other tribes, despised by the other tribes. The other tribes looked at them and said, because of what they had been given was of no value, they were of no value. Looking at the external blessings in their life or the lack of blessings, they considered those people of no value because what they had was of no value. And the Zebulonites constantly heard that they would be considered a worthless people. They would be considered a despised people. These are the people that never got invited north to Jerusalem where all the governmental decisions were made. These are the people that would be considered the outcast of all the tribes. They were the uncultured the uneducated. These were the hillbillies, the hicks of their society. And so they were never invited. If they ever did find their way to the party with all the other elites, everyone knew they didn't really belong there. They just weren't what they should be to be hanging out with these kind of people. And so they were despised their whole life. But the Zebulonites didn't care what other people thought. They didn't care how other people saw their situation. They chose to believe that the inheritance that they received was not an insult, but was actually a gift. And that man's rejection was God's protection in their life. And they chose to believe God where other people chose to doubt God. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine says, God is not slack in keeping his promise as some consider slackness, but instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What the apostle Simon Peter was saying was, Hey, listen, you and I have to know a lot of other people are going to look at the worthless, difficult trial, troubles, maybe the inheritances that we have, the issues that we, and they're going to look at it and they're going to say, where's God at? I thought God promised you he would bless you and he would do this for you and he'd do with that. But the Bible says if there ever is slack, what they call slack concerning the promise, know this, it's because God is protecting you and God is filling up what they call slack with his mercy and he cares for you and he's working things for you and he don't want you to perish. He wants your life to be the best possible life. And he doesn't just do it with external things is what he says. What's he saying? There's treasure in the sand. There's treasure in trauma. There's treasure in difficulty. There's treasure in that divorce. There's treasure in the loss. There's even treasure in your dumb mistakes and your failures and all the things that you keep getting wrong. In COVID, there's treasure somewhere. In the political craziness of our world, there's treasure somewhere. And Moses said, he said this, 
He said, learn to treasure what everyone else says is worthless. And so Zebulon had to keep doing that for years, for decades. They had to, had to keep going back to Moses said, there's treasure in the sand. They had to keep going back to it. They had to tell their sons when they were discouraged, Hey son, don't worry about it. I know that we're doing this God stuff. And I know we're trusting him and I know it don't look like what they have, but don't worry about it. There's treasure in the sand. Wives would have to encourage their husbands. Don't get down. Don't beat yourself up. I know you lost a job. Don't worry about it. There's treasure hidden somewhere in the sand. People were constantly talking one to another, neighbors encouraging neighbors, pastors encouraging their churches, churches encouraging their pastors. Hey, I know this is difficult, but there's treasure hidden somewhere in the sand. They just kept talking about the promise. Didn't see it. They had sand, nothing but sand all around them, sand all around them, the opposite of what they were talking about, but they kept on believing. Did you know Paul told Timothy that if you want to know how you can actually go and wage war, all you need is to keep the prophecy that was given to you. Paul told Timothy, Hey, if you want to know what's so powerful that if you've got a hold of it, you could go to an extreme and wage war with it. All you have to do is understand that prophecy, that promise, that word from God you've been given is all you need to keep fighting and keep warring and make a decision. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to doubt. I'm going to trust that there's treasure hidden in the sand. And so they chose to rise above what they had been handed. Number two, the treasure, the key word to me is, was hidden in the sand. It was hidden in the despised place. It's not obvious. It's not out in the open. This is not a surface revelation. This is not a cosmetic fix. Moses said the treasure is hidden. And when I went to go look up the Zebulonites, I discovered we don't know how long it took them exactly, but they did discover this is real. This is not, this is actual history. They did discover that there was a unique rare value in their sands. Glass would have been of great value in ancient times. It was very hard to come by glass in those days. And along the river that went right through this region there along the Sea of Galilee, there's a river called the River Bellis, and it's famous for its glossy sands. You cannot find this sand anywhere else in the world. And they discovered that they could melt down this sand. You can't melt down the other sand, but you can melt down this sand and it produces some of the most beautiful glass in the world. And so this area that was considered nothing but worthless value, no value sand became the sole manufacturer for glass in the ancient world. And it brought untold wealth and treasure into that region. On top of that, there was a shellfish that only lived in this glossy sand called the Murex shellfish that they extracted a very rare, highly prized purple dye from that was incredibly valuable in the ancient world as well that also brought incredible treasure into that region. And so I just feel like every now and then we got to even go down to the specific of the sand. It wasn't buried underneath the sand. It wasn't buried somewhere around the sand. It was actually in the sand. The treasure was hidden 
in the sand. We don't know how long it took them, but they found the treasure that was there. You know, Jesus teaches in Matthew 13, and I believe, and I'll show you in a minute how I see this, but I believe Jesus, when he told the parable in Matthew 13 of what the kingdom of God is like, I think he's giving a nod to the truth that we're talking about today. When he says this, the kingdom of God is like a man who finds a treasure hidden in a field and he goes out and he sells everything he's got so he can buy the treasure or buy the field with the treasure in it. The message was simple that he found a treasure, but to get the treasure, he had to buy the field. A lot of people, Jesus is saying, want the treasure in life, but they don't want to pay the price for the field. We don't like the field. We don't like the sand. We don't like the work. We don't like to have to have faith, to believe, to work, to persevere, to endure. But if you want to know what the kingdom of God is like, Jesus says it's like that. It's treasure and it's hidden in the field. It's treasure and it's hidden in the sand. This is why I want to take just a minute and talk to those who are in Cincinnati. We're here in Florence and we're in this beautiful building and we've got everything up and you're setting up and tearing down in a school. And a lot of people would look at that and the enemy would whisper in your ear and he would say, ah, you're second rate. You're the inferior campus. He's not there physically or whatever. But I want to tell you that I believe that there's so much treasure in what you're doing that not that I don't love the people that are here because they're helping us make it happen. But I think if you'll look for it, if you'll seek for it, if you'll, if you'll believe God for it, you'll find that there's treasure that God's going to bring into your life and bring into that city that he would bring no other way than for you to do what other people would think is not what maybe uh, is something of great value. I think about many years ago, probably 14 plus years ago now, when we were in a place as a church and and, you know, we just had a bunch of church people here and, and church people don't like me very much. I try, I try, I really try. I want you to like me, but I get along with sinners way better. And I used to feel bad about that until I really started learning more about Jesus. And he kind of seemed to have the same problem and not that I'm him, but, but I felt like I was in good company. At least being another one of the sinners hanging out with Jesus was, was what I would give myself with that. And, and I can remember just like, how are we going to just get outside of the four walls of the church? And we started to try to think about how, you know, and I was, I was, I was a youth pastor. I, I met my youth pastor in, in a lunchroom at my high school. Um, that's really where if I had not met him there. My life wouldn't be. So I just said, Hey, as a youth pastor, we tried to, we try to figure out how to work with schools. So let's, so we sent out word to every single school all across Northern Kentucky and no one called us back, but one school. And it was a school that all the kids go that can't make it at any other school. They, they don't want these kids at those schools. So they, they'll let you, you know, they send them to this school. This is, this is, I don't know what they call the school, but it's that school. And, and they, that's who invited us to come in. And I can remember all the places we seemed to get invited in those days were the places where everybody was economically challenged. Every 
place that we went, poverty was everywhere. And, and all the, the people that we just seemed to be reaching were people that, that, that no one else wanted. And, and, and even that was kind of our reputation, if you will. And I looked at other churches and God blessed them, but they, they reached the business people and they reached those blessed financially. And they did this, but not us. And I just would always just keep reminding myself, you know, just reach the people that no one else wants to reach. Let God deal with all that other stuff. What am I saying? I'm saying it's easy to look around and forget, but we found treasure hidden in the sand and God gives us people that everybody else wants because we're still willing to say we ain't trying to be no country club. We're trying to be a church that goes and makes a difference because there's treasure hidden in sand. I got to hurry up. Josiah, the Bible teaches us, ordered that they start to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed in Jerusalem. And as they begin to clean up the brokenness and the rubble and the debris, they find a hidden chamber that leads down to a passageway that hidden deep down in a room is a treasure chest. They move the debris, they clean it off, they carry it out of that chamber, and they're beginning to talk about, I wonder what's in the treasure chest. Surely it's, it's something of great value. And when they finally break open the treasure chest, they're all disappointed because all that's in there is an old ancient book that now we would know. They called it the book of the law, which is many believe would be most of our Old Testament. And, and the scribes came and started to interpret and read this ancient book that had been lost for many years. And they read this group of scriptures that was actually a prophecy hundreds of years before. And I don't have the time to go into it, but a few years ago, I preached a message called uh, Open the Treasure, and you can go back and find that, and you can hear the story in detail. But they, they read in there specifically that there will be a king in Israel. His name will be Josiah. The prophecy mentions the age of this king, that he'll be eight. And they, when the scribes read it, they know that they need to go and read this to Josiah. And so Josiah is sitting there and they tell him the story. We were cleaning up the debris, cleaning up the rubble. We were moving all the, the boulders and all the broken things. And we found this passageway. We went down into this hidden chamber and in there was hidden a treasure. And we found this treasure. We opened this treasure and this book was in there. And as we were reading the book, we ran across these verses and we felt like you needed to hear them. And they start to read that there will be a king that is raised up in Israel. His name will be Josiah. And he says, that's me. I know the history of the kings of Israel. I'm the only one that's ever been named Josiah. And then they say, this king will take the throne when he's eight years old. And Josiah says, I know the history of the kings of Israel. I'm the only king that's ever been given the throne at the age of eight. And then they start to break down that he will rebuild the temple, that he will tear down the altars that were built to false idols and false gods, and that he'll turn the nation back to God. And Josiah tears his clothes as he hears that word. And he begins to just representing his life is changing. He's taken off the old man. He's taken off his whole nature. He's taken off everything that was before that moment. And he's saying, God, I'm completely yours, whatever you want to do with me. And I'm saying all of this to say that so many times we forget that 
when life looks like sand and it doesn't look like we have much in external ways, we have all the treasure we need in this book and that God can speak to you and that God can change you and God can do a work in your heart and that our treasure really is hidden in the sand. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessel that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You know what Paul was telling the church of Corinth? Remember that when God created us, he took dirt and he breathed in it. He put treasure in dirt and that treasure is in you. When we think God is concerned with the external things, we have to remember what he said to the church of Corinth, that we have treasure in earthen vessel, that God places more value on what he put in us than the circumstances we've been handed in life. And even in the worst of circumstances, treasure is hidden it's hidden. You got to look for it. You got to seek for it, but it's there somewhere. You say, no, it's my worst failure. No, it's my biggest mistake. No way. That's my greatest disappointment. And the devil uses it to beat up on you and devalue you. Remember what Paul said. There is treasure in that earth and vessel. God's given you his breath. He's given you his spirit. And if you allow him to, he'll give you a word just like he did for Josiah that will change your life. And I'm almost done. Number three, where you come from is not worthless, but where you come from, no matter what it looks like, has incredible value, has great value. We would know that Jesus is from the city of Nazareth. And Nazareth is located in this area along the Sea of Galilee that is located in the inheritance that was given to the Zebulonites. So Jesus was raised with an understanding of everything that we're talking about because the imagery of what came with that inheritance never really left these people. We would know that it continued to, even though they had turned the sand into glass and it brought great treasure. And even though they found the dye that became a great treasure to those people, they were always still kind of looked down upon by the rest of the nation of Israel. And we know this because when Philip comes to Nathaniel to talk to him about the Messiah, and tells him where he comes from. Nathaniel's response in John 1 is, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? The point was this, Jesus knew that where he came from is what caused most people to disqualify him. He knew that. But Jesus also knew that there was treasure hidden in the sand, right? And we know this because the great story that we've heard so many times, now we can see it in a brand new light, where in John 8, they want to trap Jesus. And the religious leaders, because of where he's from, because they don't believe that people should be following him and listening to him, and, and they're trying to do everything they can to destroy his credibility, they decide that they're going to go out and catch a woman caught in adultery. And they have a plan with this because they're trying to say something to him. 
And so they know the women that have this reputation or that reputation. And so they, they send people to follow them until they catch a woman caught in the very act of adultery. They pull that woman out of that place and they throw her at the feet of Jesus, which is a side note. The worst place to throw a sinner, if you want to hurt him, is at the feet of Jesus. And there she is. And they say to him, the law of Moses says we should stone her. She should, we should kill her. This woman, because of what she's done, doesn't deserve to breathe air. She doesn't even deserve to live. And oh yeah, by the way, before you say too much, this is what they're saying. She was caught doing exactly what your mother Mary was doing when she conceived you. We all know, we all know this immaculate conception, this overshadowed by the Holy. We, we, we know that's a farce. We all know Joseph is not your biological father. We all know that you're an illegitimate child. We all know. And so not only does this woman not deserve to live, you don't deserve to live. And Jesus does what? He kneels down and he writes in the dirt. He's writing in the, the sand. And people have speculated for thousands of years. What did he write? Right? Scholars. What, what did he say? What did he write in the sand? And no one knows. And you judge this for yourself. You consider this for yourself. For those of you who've heard this text many times. That is it possible that the message was not in what he wrote? But the, in, the message was in where he wrote it. That as they're telling him that this woman is worthless, this woman doesn't deserve to live. And oh yeah, your mom and you, you're, you're worthless too. When he kneeled down and he wrote in the sand, it wasn't a message in what he wrote, but where he wrote it, he was saying to them, remember that I come, I know where I come from. And I know I come from a place that's despised. And I know I come from a place that was received an insulting inheritance. And I know I come from a place that you consider uh, people that in no way should belong in, in the, the high or places in that society. I know that that's how you think of us. But I just want to remind you that even though you despised us and even though you mocked at us and you laughed behind our backs and even though he's looking at them writing in the sand and he's basically saying, let's remember that we found treasure hidden in the sand, that that which you said was worthless actually brought great wealth. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, you can look at this woman and you can look on the surface and you don't see anything of value. You don't see anything that deserves to live. You don't see anything that of any worth, but I see treasure hidden in the sand and I see someone that's of great worth and that treasure is in there. And I believe that God can bring that treasure out of her. I love Jesus too, because, because he doesn't just end it there, right? What does he say? He says, oh yeah, yeah, by the way, I know where you come from too. I know where you come from too. And you're sitting there with your gavel and your judgments, but you got your sin too. And from the oldest to the youngest, 
they walked away. And Jesus looked at the woman, right? Where are your accusers? Where are they? Jesus is an expert at taking the worthless, that which is of no value. When Jesus decided that he would go call disciples to follow him, he didn't go to a seminary. He actually went to the land of the Zebulonites and he found the apostle Simon Peter there fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And he found Andrew and he found James and he found John, the sons of Zebedee. And he found Philip and he found Andrew and he went and he called him. You know, there was one apostle that was from the north. And you might remember this apostle because this is the apostle that Jesus said at the Last Supper, the one whose hand is in the sop will betray me. The one who looked at the woman who broke open the alabaster box and he looked at her and said, what you have done is a waste. The one who with 30 pieces of silver devalued Jesus in his life so much that he took that cheap paycheck to crucify the Lord of glory. That disciple, Judas, was from the north. But the ones who, like Paul, would say things like, I'm the chief of all sinners. The, the people that would realize that the only reason they had any treasure or value was because of what God had done in their life and what God had done in their hearts and what God had placed on the inside of them and that the treasure was found in the forgiveness that God had revealed to them and the grace that God had given. The treasure was found in that while they were yet sinners, Christ loved us and Christ died for us. And that treasure, that treasure, they didn't just keep to themselves, but they went out and they made a difference with it. They went out and they added value to their world. Did you know every church that has been studied throughout history on average has a 14 year lifespan at 14 years. They keep meeting. They even keep growing, but they quit winning people that are away from God. And they say the average church in America specifically begins to die at year 14. People show up, they're present, but the church is dead. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say it is in our nature to keep the treasure to ourselves. But the treasure was given to you and I, the treasure of a new beginning, the treasure of a fresh start, the treasure of God renewing your mind, the treasure of the wisdom of God, the treasure of godly connections, the, the treasure of, of God opening up doors for you, the treasure of God making a way for you when there seemed to be no way, the treasure of God ordering your steps, that treasure, that treasure. It was given to you was so you can go and I can go make a difference in our world. So I'm challenging this church once again. I've done it many times and I pray as long as I'm the pastor, I'll never stop. As we begin this new campaign called how to save a life on your way out, you'll get these little lifesavers just as a reminder. But as we go into it, it's really six weeks of the grand opening in Cincinnati, but we're also going to grand open here next week. We're not just celebrating what they're doing there. We're calling you to also be missionaries. We're calling you to make a decision. We're all church planners. 
We all got to act like this. We're just opening. We're just getting going. We got to go invite friends. We got to go. We got to go. We got to go. We got to always keep that in front of us, that spirit in front of us. Because people that know they want to make a difference always find a way, don't they? They always find solutions. They always find answers. People who don't want to make a difference, you know what they find? Excuse after excuse after excuse. You know how creative churches are at finding excuses to not make a difference? We're incredible at it. Maybe the best in the world. But I'm going to challenge you in this next season. If you're watching online and maybe you're there saying, but what about I'm not there physically and you have your reasons, you have whatever the reasons are. I want to just take a minute and say that just as much as the new location in Cincinnati is not inferior to the people that are in this room right now, wherever you're meeting, wherever you're worshiping, wherever you're hearing the word of God, it's not inferior. And last year, as we worked into Easter, because we couldn't gather physically, we had the largest Easter attendance in our history online. And my point is, my point is not in numbers. My point is you can make a difference. Even if you're not here physically, you can send out emails or text or you can share it on Facebook, but we're going to set out for these next six weeks. And every single week, I'm going to commit to you to show you the basics, how to reach your family, how to reach a friend, how to reach our community. And we're going to begin to walk through how to save a life, how to make a difference together. And I believe it's going to be a time where we're going to really see um, some lives changed for the glory of God. Amen. Hey, listen, I want to uh, um, pray over you, pray over. Uh, don't forget tonight at five 30, we're going to have a special prayer time um, for the, uh, for this next season. And so one hour being here and out of here, but I want to meet you, but I'm going to pray on my way out. Is that okay? So I'm going to pray as I walk out because y'all get in front of me and then I never get out. And so father in Jesus name, I thank you that there's treasure hidden in every life, in every difficulty in every trial and every struggle. And father, I thank you that we'll leave this place where the enemy has said, there's a, you're of no value. You're no, this you're, you'll never be father. I thank you that we're walking out of here with great hope concerning what you want to do in our life in Jesus name. And now we pray for this next season, the next six weeks, the opening of Cincinnati, the relaunch of what's happening here. And father, we ask that you move in a way that only you would get the glory in Jesus name. We all said, amen. Hey, that's it. Let's go make a difference.
Come on, can you just say you are my champion with me? You are my champion. Giants fall, giants fall when you stand undefeated. Every battle you won, I am who you say I am. You crown me with confidence. I am seen. In the heavenly place, yeah. Come on, let's sing. Well, hey, I hope you enjoyed the message. Really quick before you tune out, I, I changed into my Cincy shirt. So just, you know, just for you, all you Cincinnatians that are going to be part of the Anderson location, we're so 